This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Well, I'm, JJ, I'm very worried about this because the, the number of people who believe just crazy theories on the far left or far right um, that come out over the Internet Virginia Senator Mark Warner, vice chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which has just released the final volume of its report on Russian active measures campaigns and interference in the 2016 election. And here's a part of what's worrying him. Americans and lawmakers as well, or prominent Americans, that may end up being manipulated by this Russian disinformation campaign. And speaking of things in the report that some found worrisome, the five-point Russian plan. A five-point reconciliation plan, which you can see President Trump kept to pretty effectively throughout the duration of his tenure. Retired CIA clandestine service member Douglas London discusses that with us coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP. In Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The title says it all. The Select Committee on Intelligence of the United States Senate. Russian Active Measures, Campaigns, and Interference in the 2016 Election. Volume 5, Counterintelligence Threats and vulnerabilities. It's 966 pages. Mark Warner, a senator from Virginia and vice chair of the committee, talked about his concerns and more pressing worries that he had as a result of what they learned from the report and things that he just wonders about, serious things that he wonders about, like the president's relationship with Vladimir Putin. Here's how the conversation went. Senator Warner, thank you for agreeing to talk to us about this. It's been a long time since we've spoken. We spoke early on when your committee began doing these reports, and we spoke after the first one, and you sort of gave me a little bit of an uh, what, what you had learned then, uh, an understanding of what came out of that. I'm interested in right now about uh, talking about the fifth report, the final report. Can you summarize for us what came, what you found in the final volume of your report? Well, JJ, I um, appreciate the opportunity to be back on your your presentation. Um, a couple things. One, I'm very proud of the fact that all five of these volumes were completely bipartisan, and this is a subject matter that is controversial. And obviously, I I was hoping we would be finished uh, earlier than than we are. Um, but I, this final volume, nearly a thousand pages long goes through in exquisite detail the level of contacts between Russia and Russian agents 
and individuals directly or indirectly affiliated with the Trump campaign in 2016 and brings to light new information such as the fact that the Trump then Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort was dealing directly with a known Russian agent Konstantin Kalimnik. Uh, we don't know some of the information that he conveyed to Mr. Kalimnik, whatever happened to it. And while different people will read the report and reach different conclusions, um, there clearly was an unprecedented level of of um, at least contact. And there'd never been this much foreign contact with a presidential campaign in the past. And again, I would urge your listeners, it's a long slog to read it, but I think it's worthwhile reading it to make sure that we do a better job of protecting ourselves against foreign intervention in future elections. Yeah, it is a long piece of material, but it is, as you say, well worth it. I've spent a good amount of time reading it. One of the things that I read was uh, you said, while the committee does not describe the final result as a complete picture, this volume provides the most comprehensive description to date of Russian activities and the threat they posed. It's impossible to know what you don't know, uh, Senator Warner, but what part of this picture is missing, and can you characterize its importance, if you can? Well, we don't know what the Russians did with the information that campaign manager Manafort turned over to them. We don't know how we know how many calls took place between Roger Stone and it appears then candidate Trump. We have some idea of how much conversation then took place with folks from WikiLinks, but um, there's still unanswered questions there. And then there are a host of other issues that were raised that may not be as, as directly relevant that we just had no way to, to, to know. So I think, you know, I'm not, I don't think the product here is to rehash 2016. That's in the past. But the product here is to warn Americans that foreign nations did and will continue to try to intervene in our democratic process because the very openness of our society makes it easier for them uh, to interfere, whether using social media, whether trying to hack into our election systems, or whether, as in the case of 2016, um, you know, hacking information and then releasing it strategically. And we n- need to be on guard. And one of my biggest disappointments from this White House is their unwillingness to acknowledge that this is an ongoing threat. Uh, the intelligence community, as recently as 10 days ago, indicated that not only is Russia back trying to interfere with disinformation about Joe Biden, but other nations like China and Iran may also be interfering or trying to undermine our democratic processes as well. Uh, President Trump's relationship with Russian President Vladimir Putin and you know, is a big situation here, uh, and it has been from the very beginning, given that you found that Putin played a key role in ordering certain activities designed to interfere in 2016, and you have just pointed out again U.S. intelligence knows that Russia is trying to do this again. What concerns, if any, do you have about this relationship, the meetings and the calls, some of which have been semi-private? Well, I do wonder why the president, who's you know, like him or dislike him, you've got to give him credit for being willing to 
you know, call out anybody who disagrees with him. And he does it to Democratic politicians, Republican politicians. He does it to other world leaders. The only person he's never been critical of at all, to my knowledge, is Vladimir Putin. And I just, I think a lot of Americans wonder why. I don't have an answer for that. Um, but it is a question that it's, I think is still a legitimate question. I, I, we all, I still have vivid memories of when President Trump and President Putin appeared jointly in Helsinki, Finland, in front of the whole world, and President Trump accepted Putin's version of what happened in 2016 rather than our own intelligence community. I, I still don't understand why he did that. Very few people do, and I've spoken to a number of intelligence uh, officers, some of whom were actually working and active at that time, uh, and also we remember seeing uh, the Russian foreign minister and and ambassador at the White House, and, and felt heartbroken and and um, felt as if they had taken a gut punch. But you mentioned this is an ongoing threat to the U.S. This 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 interference is taking a different approach this time. What have you learned about what they're trying to do and how now? Well, the intelligence community said 10 days ago that Russia was trying to undermine the candidacy of Joe Biden with disinformation and misinformation, often involving Ukraine. My job as vice chair of the intelligence committee is to continue to press the intelligence community to release more of that information. I know the intelligence community, by their nature, always like to keep things secret and do have to protect their sources and methods. But boy, oh boy, I mean, if there's one thing we learned in 2016, I think the intelligence community and frankly, the then Obama administration should have done a better job of educating the American public about what the Russians were, were doing then. I think it's really important that the intelligence community educate the American electorate about what the Russians are trying to do in 2020, because I don't think we'll get that education out of this White House. Uh, so uh, I'm going to keep pushing the intelligence community to release more information as they get more facts. And um, uh, I, I do think there's a lesson we can learn from other nations, because Russia doesn't just choose to interfere in our elections. They interfered in the Brexit vote in the UK. They interfered in the French presidential elections. And countries where they interfere on a regular basis that are close to Russia, like Sweden or Latvia or Lithuania or Estonia, those governments have ended up trying to be fully transparent about the Russian tactics so their citizens know and can spot on their own Russian disinformation. I don't think we've done as good a job yet at educating Americans to spot um, Russian disinformation, whether they're advocating that it was Ukraine rather than Russia in 2016 or other, you know, false theories out there. Senator, one of the things that's confounded a lot of people and myself as well is the other part of Russia's disinformation process, and that is, in some cases, recruiting and, 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 and welcoming people who buy into that and promote it, including, unfortunately, some people on the Hill. Why does that happen? Well, that's a great question, and it's one of the reasons why I think it's really important, again, that the intelligence community does a better job of educating Americans and lawmakers as well 
or prominent Americans that may end up being manipulated by this Russian disinformation campaign. I think they, those people need to be briefed. And then if they continue to advocate Russian propaganda, uh, then at least we'll know they were doing it knowingly rather than unknowingly. I think I, I'm not going to call out anyone, elected official or otherwise, until they've been fully briefed by the intelligence community um, about this Russian disinformation campaign. And I'm continuing to press uh, the IC uh, to do those kind of briefings. Fiona Hill and others who have testified in, in public and have spoken in public, and the intelligence community have said this, and you have too, that what Russia did was a blueprint for others, for other nations and other, you know, hostile actors. Um, what, what risk does this particular 2020 election have of going the same way that 2016 did, given that we know not not just Russia's at this now, but other nations are, and given the, well, it's a lot more chaos now in the U.S. than we had in 2016. Well, I'm, JJ, I'm very worried about this because the, the number of people who believe just crazy theories on the far left or far right um, that come out over the Internet really worries me. And as you mentioned, it's, we're in a period of more chaos and, and more concern, and people are, are more isolated due to COVID. The idea that a, a foreign government could spread some false story that may be then amplified on social media is of huge concern to me. I think this election is terribly important. I think at the end of the day, and I hope Americans will vote in record numbers, but if they also, at the end of the day, this election ought to be decided by Americans and Americans making their choices off of real information, whether they like President Trump or dislike him or whether they like Vice President Biden or dislike him. They ought to be making those decisions off of real information and not disinformation that's being created by a foreign power. I've asked a bunch of questions today, and usually – you have a lot more insightful things that you're thinking about than what I'm asking based on my limited amount of knowledge. So let me ask you this. What haven't I asked you about that is supremely important as anybody goes through this document or those that don't have the document hear about it? What's the most important factors need that need to be considered right now? Well, we have made progress um, since 2016. Our election systems, our polling places, the number of a paper ballot backup, We've gotten much better on that. Um, the social media companies, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, have gotten better on their internal controls. And we have now literally hundreds of law enforcement and intelligence community personnel who are working on this topic at the FBI and the NSA and at the Director of National Intelligence Offices. That is all good news. But what is really troubling to me is that there is no new law in place since 2016 to make it more difficult for foreign countries, Russian or otherwise, to interfere in our elections. For example, uh, we couldn't even get passed because we never got a chance to vote on it, a requirement that said if a foreign government tries to, tries to advertise on social media – there ought to be the same disclosure requirements that happen if they advertise on WTOP or on TV stations. 
there's not similarity of, of disclosure. We had something called the Honest Ads Act that would have passed and, and changed that. We've not even been able to pass a law because we never got a chance to vote on it that would say if a foreign government comes to a presidential campaign and offers you dirt on your opposing candidate, that the obligation ought to be to tell the FBI, not just take that information. So the fact that we have not put any new rules of the road in place, and it means that we have to rely on the kind of goodwill of the social media companies or the hard work of our intelligence community, but they don't have any new tools to combat this, really concerns me greatly. And I, and I just, you know, I'm not sure with COVID we're going to get those new laws passed in the next um, 70 days. Uh, but I would urge, you know, listeners to, to read the report and continue to tell your lawmakers on both political parties, step up, do your job, and let's protect the integrity of our elections. Virginia Senator Mark Warner, Vice Chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Senator, thank you. It's great to visit again. Thank you, sir. Now, we turn our attention to Douglas London, a retired, decorated, 34-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency's clandestine service with deep knowledge of Russia's activities, capabilities, and sometimes their objectives. You've read some of this report, obviously. It's a thousand pages, and it was just released, I believe, yesterday. Um, and unless you're a really fast reader, which I'm not saying you're not that person, you're probably uh, still working your way through it. But what have you learned so far? Well, it's fascinating. And, you know, um, one of the, the fortunate uh, traits you pick up as an intel officer is to be able to peruse things pretty quickly and come up with stuff that really jumps out and catches your eye. I focused a great deal on the transition period uh, in terms of the relationship between the Trump team and Russian counterparts, uh, particularly the relationship between Kirill Dmitriev, who, uh, as you might know, is a, the CEO of a U.S.-sanctioned company, the, the Russian Direct Investment Fund. And his uh, role in basically providing a conduit for Putin to provide a five-point reconciliation plan, which you can see President Trump kept to pretty effectively throughout the duration of his tenure. I think what sort of also jumped out is uh, we've, we've had these discussions. In fact, you and I, JJ, have talked about, you know, is Trump an agent? Is he, you know, under control? I think it comes pretty clearly that he acted as an approving official for the decisions made in terms of collaborating with Russia and specifically Russian intelligence. So whether you want to call that a witting contact or if you would, in terms of our legalities, acting as a foreign agent of a government, I think his role was much more witting and much more direct than perhaps folks were willing to um, acknowledge earlier on through this period. So it's a fascinating report and I'm still going through it, as you say. You know, I just spoke with Senator Mark Warner uh, about this, the uh, vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and he talked as well about being baffled uh, by the president's relationship with Vladimir Putin. Uh, and um, very clearly, when you look at that relationship and some of the other activities that took place, he said, and this report says, that there are still things that they don't know about that took place during whatever was going on, including what the Russian intelligence or Russian government did with some of that information that they got from Paul Manafort. So I'm wondering, as you as an intelligence uh, uh, expert looks at, looks at this, um, do you get the sense that there are pieces of this puzzle that are missing that are 
something the U.S. intelligence and government need to know about now for safety purposes? Well, that's the, the fundamental um, process of intelligence, isn't it? That it's always a mosaic. And the art of intelligence is being able to take the pieces of that mosaic and come up with the best assessment, which is why the community you see on its documents speaks to levels of confidence. Any finished analytical product will indicate whether there's low, medium, or high confidence in any particular set of findings. So you are always dealing with an imperfect amount of knowledge, but I think even from what uh, you see in these thousand pages, it, it paints a clear picture which is then supported by actions. Again, I, I, I focused on, on the five point plan that the Russians provided, which was handed to Jared Kushner on Inauguration Day, according to this report. And at the very top of the list is one thing that affected me very personally. It put an emphasis on sharing intelligence. It put an emphasis on cooperating with Syria, put an emphasis on cooperating on Ukraine. I think you could see in action how President Trump lived up to those requests in his tenure, I wrote myself, and we talked about it, JJ, the pressure that CIA was placed under to rush to get to Moscow intelligence, cooperation, high-level visits to share, despite what we warned them about their uh, uh, ambitions and their, and their actions. The president removed, finally, troops from northwest Syria. He had tried earlier, but found resistance from General Mattis to do so, but ultimately did in 2019, which was a boon for Russian influence and and presence in the area, and we had an entire impeachment over the fact that the president withheld aid from Ukraine. That's point number three on this list. And you could also see a series of decisions the president made in the world of nuclear treaties and cooperation. That's point number two on this list, talking about greater cooperation by U.S. and Russia in, in, in a way that really would benefit the Russians and the president followed through by withdrawing us from the uh, Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the Open Skies Treaty, and essentially uh, threatening to do so on the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. So, you know, with intelligence, you look for validation, you take the pieces you have, and then you try to find ways to corroborate it through other reliable sources or actions. I think there's a number of actions here that helps us validate many of the report's findings. Okay, so those findings are chilling, no doubt about it put in the context that you have put them in, saying essentially these were five things that were handed essentially to a person who is directly plugged into the administration and then to see these things take place. So where are we now? How much trouble are we in now? Well, the concern is how the president facilitates the Russian activities. We have a, a robust set of capabilities to counter Russian interference and counter their intelligence collection and, and covert efforts. But when the president is protecting them, uh, which essentially he's done through action, uh, that, that's going to make it a bit harder. One can hope that, as we've seen, uh, as we've seen by the very nature of this report coming out, the professional institutions that safeguard the United States will keep working. And uh, they will struggle through some of the impediments, but the president has some limitations, fortuitously, uh, by virtue of the Constitution and by virtue of the standards and in a very institutionalized national security system where the process goes on. And I would like to think that uh, that problem is going to end in a few months come Election Day. Uh, I, I'm beginning to worry more about what's going to happen in the transition period, those two and a half months between November 3rd and January 20th of 2021. What are some of those things you worry about? 
I have already seen in my uh, consideration the president having a fire sale on U.S. national security interests, withdrawing troops from Germany, indulging Russian expansion into Syria and Libya and accommodating their interest in Ukraine and, and increasingly so in the Baltics and Europe. The president will have time where he might try to demonstrate, well, here's why you need me in the White House, perhaps by provoking some incident. It's got to be measured, in fact, on both sides, because I would think some of our natural adversaries and rivals, be it uh, China and Iran and North Korea, might be thinking just along those lines and might take what their minds are preventative moves, which could risk a, a, a series of escalatory moves or confrontations that could bring some problems based on miscalculations. So my, again, as I always try to remain helpful in the institutions that guard us, you know, the military, U.S. Armed Forces, CIA, the intelligence community, State Department, they're going to have limited bandwidth just in the, the transition period alone. It's, it's, a, it's an exponentially arduous uh, experience, particularly when a new party is coming in. The problem is there's no precedent really with Trump. He is sort of defied the standards and, and occasionally the Constitution in terms of what kind of pressures he might put on those institutions. But between the limited bandwidth and the fact that their senior leaders are going to be thinking of their own prospects in a new administration, I'd like to hope that might temper the president's um, nature. And uh, we'll just have to hope that and the possibility that once at the White House, he will want to bank on what he has made for himself in terms of financial interests and not risk those through criminal or civil liabilities. Well, considering that we don't take sides in this uh, on this program, is there a way to, through the legal process or through the U.S. governmental process, through the processes to prevent um, any of these concerns that you have that may take place from happening? In other words, say someone in the administration decides to do something that... Um, would be a really bad thing for the nation during this transition period. Is there a way, is there an organization, are there people that can stop it? Well, ideally, the Constitution is where we start with a system of checks and balances that relies on the Congress and the Supreme Court, obviously, to do its job in, in a bipartisan, if not nonpartisan, manner. And as we all have heard enough, uh, one has to accept lawful orders, but not unlawful orders if you're in the military or anywhere in the chain of command working for the, the chief executive. So his adventurism is sort of limited by that constraints. But as commander in chief, he has an enormous power to act unilaterally. Um, so one can hope that the legal constraints will, will facilitate the, the right uh, outcomes. And that those who are in Congress, even on the GOP side, particularly on the GOP side, uh, will have to think beyond January 20th in what moves they make or what they indulge over those two and a half months. Anything you want to add that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? I, uh, again, um, embrace the role here of the press, uh, regardless of you know objectivity, to at least try to illuminate what's going on to give the American people uh, an insight. I think these thousand pages are going to be spun variously by the different sides of the House politically and, and by different news channels. But I think just the actual language itself as it starts to get out will, you know, it's not going to change some people's minds, but give them some pause to think and I think be an important um, record for history as we take a closer look at this period of time in the years to come and try not to repeat it again.
Douglas London, retired CIA clandestine service member and Russia expert. Thanks, Doug. Always happy to, uh, to talk to you, JJ. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. Coming up in our next episode, the one we've been waiting for since March. It's not going to be everybody's going to have the availability of a vaccine on the beginning of 2021, but it will incrementally increase, hopefully rapidly, which would obviously add to the question, well, who's going to get it first? Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He answers that question and tells us something deeply personal about his journey on the president's coronavirus task force. But some feel that public health officials like myself are harming them as opposed to trying to help them. And with that comes extremes, extremes that I've never experienced before to the tune of threats, physical threats, death threats, harassments of my family, my wife and my children. That's coming up in our next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and please follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha podcast. Also, if you want more national security news, sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA, the national security podcast. Hi, I'm Aaron Brockovich, and I am thrilled to be launching my new podcast, Superman's Not Coming. I think we are all beginning to realize that we are on our own, but not to worry, we have each other. That's right, you, me, and millions of others are here, and we do have the strength, the heart, and the courage to find our voice and use it. For over 20 years, I've been working with people across the nation and around the world to overcome incredible odds. I hope you'll listen to these tales of men and women, just like you, who did just that. They rose up, they spoke up, and they didn't wait for a superhero, They became that hero. Each of us has a fighting spirit, and when joined together, is greater than any superpower. So what are you waiting for? Be inspired and be empowered, because Superman isn't coming, but you're already here. Once a week, every week. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Podcast One. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.